Well, good morning, Forest View. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Nat. And uh, if you have just stumbled across, if the, if the YouTube uh, algorithm just somehow sent this video into your feed, we want to extend a special welcome or invitation. Uh, welcome to you. We're really glad that you're joining us. Forest View is a church, and we exist to be a community where people meet Jesus and become more like him. That is the lens, that is the filter through which all of our decisions, everything that we do as a church, that's how we figure out who we are and what we want to be doing in this world. We, we ultimately come back to this question, is this, is this creating opportunities for us to share and proclaim the message of Jesus with others? And is this helping us as a community, both as individuals and corporately, grow and become more like Jesus, to love the things that Jesus loves and to love the way that he loves? We are currently in a season in the church calendar that is called Lent, which is this strange countercultural season where Christians ask themselves the question, what needs to die in me that I might be raised to the new life that I find in Jesus? What are parts of me that need to die so that Jesus can actually rise up and come to the surface, become more evident, more real, and I can be deeper, experience a deeper connection with him in my life? And so everything that we are doing right now is about asking those questions. Hey, what inside me needs to die? Is there selfishness? Is there pride? Is there addictions? Are there habits? Are there routines? Are there relationships that I need to put under the lens, under the microscope and say, no, no, wait a minute, this is out of sync with the heart of God and it needs to end so that something new can happen both in my life and through my life. And throughout this season, we are journeying through a book in the Old Testament called the book of Ruth. It is a story about two women who, who walk through terrible tragedy and loss. It is a story about people's lives falling apart. If you've ever lost something or if it was someone or if you've ever had a relationship crumble or if you've ever just looked at your life and gone, this is not how it's supposed to be. You know this story. And yet it is a story of tragedy and loss, but it's also an incredible story about God's presence and work in the midst of that. It's a story about discovering community and redemption and that God is a God who keeps his promises. And so it's a perfect book for us to journey through throughout the Lenten season. And while it is a story that takes place thousand years, if not more, before the time of Jesus, everything about this story ultimately points to the coming of Jesus, our need for him, and the God that Jesus reveals to us. And so as we dive into the text this morning, before we do that, I want to pray. Uh, then we're going to read through it together, and then we will uh, start to unpack it. Now, last week, we started in Ruth chapter 1. This week, we are going to continue with Ruth chapter 1. We're going to finish it, and next week, we're going to move on to chapter 2. Week after that, chapter 3. Week after that, chapter 4. And then somewhere uh, after that, that we will hit Easter and we will celebrate that together. But uh, would you join me in prayer? So God, we come to you this morning with a hunger and a desire 
to be the people that you have created us to be. We acknowledge, we confess that, that so much of our lives is noise and distraction. That, that so often our minds are consumed with cheap entertainment or with cares that really don't matter when held up to the light of your kingdom. And so this morning, we ask that God that you would turn the volume down on the noise in our heads, that you would remove the distractions in our hearts, that we might hear from you, and that we might discern where you are calling us to go and who you are inviting us to be. We thank you for Jesus, for the gift of life that comes through him and only through him. And so it is with humility and thankfulness that we pray in his name this morning. Amen. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up to Ruth chapter one. I'm going to read through the entire passage, the entire chapter this morning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. So they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Naomi, uh, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come in the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home. With her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you, have sh as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. 
When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. All right, so some quick overview, just basic intro to the Bible 101. This is a story from the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is written in an ancient language called Biblical Hebrew. And uh, when we think about this, we need to realize that we're reading a text written in another language. Now, there are a few passages in the Old Testament that are in Aramaic, Ezra, Daniel, and and a verse in Jeremiah, but generally it's all biblical Hebrew. And as we approach that, we need to realize that it's written in a very different way than English. There are all sorts of different techniques and things that are used as they tell their stories or as they share their poetry or dive into dense theology or explain law. These are different than what we read or how we read it in English. Just a few things that are important to know. In English, there are 171,146 words. I don't know who counted all those up. Uh, I feel sorry for whoever's job that is, but whoever did, that's how many words we have in use generally in the English language. Now, that, also, that does not include the 47,156 words that are considered obsolete. And again, I have no idea who is there saying, yes, this word is still in use, this word is not. Um, I also don't know how a word automatically is ultimately deemed whether it is obsolete or not, although I was told when I was a youth pastor, whenever I use slang, uh, usually I do it in a mocking way of that what our teenagers were using, um, I remember having a student come up to me afterward and saying, that word is dead now. So apparently I might have something to do with what word's considered obsolete. So as I said, 171,000 words in English. In Hebrew, there are 8,679 distinct words. 171,000 versus 8,679 words. Now, it actually is even less than that because the way that Hebrew is constructed is that it's built around words, uh, root words that are all made up of three letters, and there are 2,000 root words. I just want to give you a quick example. Last week, we looked at a word, an important word in Hebrew, the word chesad, which is God, uh, typically it's uh, the word that's used to describe God's loving kindness, his covenantal never giving up love. And so this is actually what it looks like if you're looking at it in Hebrew. These are the three different letters that make the root letters that make this word up. Now, when we say that there are distinct words, the way that Hebrew works is they will add additional letters to the front or to the end of the word, or they will change up the vowels within the word 
so that uh, it can changes the meaning or it shapes the way that that word is used. So this is the word chesad, loving kindness. But if we go to the next slide, this is your loving kindness. Again, its own distinct word, but it has an ending put on it. These would all be the same color. I've just done that to help highlight it. Chesad, the same letters with some other words added on the back and these different dots, which are the vowels. Again, a next word, if you were to go to this, but according to your loving kindness, there's a word added on at the front. And again, it changes how that word is used. Go to the next one, just one more. Uh, and so here we get in your loving kindness. You can see those three core root letters there with a letter on the outside, a letter at the end, different vowels in between. Now, I've just shared with you basically everything I can remember from the three years of studying biblical Hebrew that I spent in seminary. The reason why I share this with you is that it is important to realize that there are significantly less words but however, these words carry with them deeper meaning. And the way that the authors write in the Old Testament, they find these words that are jam-packed with meaning or history, and when they use them and employ them, they can use them in incredibly powerful ways. Now, in English, when we write, it's about flow, and it's, there's a smoothness to it, and we generally want to avoid things like repetition, saying the same thing over and over again. But in Hebrew, that's an important literary technique, and sometimes they will use words in interesting ways and in interesting context that will help draw attention to that word to help uh, bring an awareness of maybe a deeper meaning or, or a richer use of that word. And we miss over it in English because we kind of read through these nice things that make everything sound like Shakespeare or smooth and flow. And yet, if you're to read through the book of Ruth and many other passages in the Old Testament, we miss out on some of these subtleties, the interesting, creative things that the writers are using. Now, there is a specific word that for us, we miss out on it as we are reading through this passage. But if you are reading through it in the original language, it would stick out like a sore thumb. It would be incredibly apparent, apparent that this word is being used over and over and over again, and that obviously the writers are trying to draw the reader or the listener's attention to this word. That is the word shuv, if you go to the next slide. And it means to turn or to return. Now, over the course of this passage, we're going to look at verses 6 to 22. There's 17 verses there. This word appears 12 times. And each time the audience would hear it, the original hearers or readers would hear it, they would be thinking, oh, that word again. Oh, that word again. Oh, that word again. And so my, what I want to do is I want to read through verses 6 to 22 again for you. But this time I want to do something to draw attention to every time that that word is used so that we can hear it in a different way. So this is Ruth chapter 1 starting at verse Six, and I, I got a bell here to kind of help do that. So let's see. All right. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughter-in-laws, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to be. 
May the Lord grant each of you uh, to find, re find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And so we see that this word shuv is used over and over and over again throughout the passage, as though the author is wanting to draw our attention to it, to, to, to use it in a powerful way to speak to us. Now, ultimately, this word is not used again. Um, it it, it kind of climaxes in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 22. So if we go to that right now, this is it in the NIV. It's what I just read to you. It actually contains that word in it twice. Shuv appears in this twice. Now, if you were to read this in the NIV, you miss this. And the NIV is trying to, is a great translation. It's trying to make it more readable and to flow and just make more sense. But let me just read you. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now, if you were to go and read a much more wooden, transliterated translation of this, I think a, a, a helpful passage is actually how the uh, New American Standard Bible translates. And so I want to read that to you right now, verse one, or chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so the writers go out of their way to not simply say that Naomi returned to Bethlehem, but that Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, returned from the land of Moab, which should immediately begin to raise flags for us that there is something interesting going on with the use of this word to return. Because what could have been said is just, oh, well, Ruth and Naomi both returned, and they could just assume that she returned with Naomi. But the text goes out of its way to say that Naomi, or sorry, that Ruth returned from 
Moab. And the interesting thing about this is, is that Ruth has lived in Moab her entire life. Ruth is returning to a place she's never been before. Now, I want to talk a little bit because they draw attention to the fact that Ruth was a Moabitess from Moab, which for all of us, like that sounds kind of redundant, but they are drawing our attention to it with the intentionality of reminding us about the land of Moab and what it would mean to be a Moabitess. So first off, the land of Moab, that's where Ruth is from. It is, uh, actually we have it on a map here so you can see uh, where it fit approximately around the time of, of Ruth. Uh, and so we don't know exactly where, how all of these boundaries, they were a little bit fluid, but generally we have all the nations of Israel, all the different tribes of Israel, and they left Egypt and they traveled up into here and they took over all this land. Now Moab is the city down here. Ruth, and, or sorry, I should say Naomi and her family, they lived in Bethlehem, and when that famine hit that we read about in chapter one, they leave Judah, they travel through Reuben, and they go to Moab. So just to give a bit of a geography for what's going on here, we see that Moab is this nation that's down uh, west and south of Judah. It's separated by the sea. Now, so some quick questions about well, what were the people of Moab like? What was their relationship with the people of Israel. A few things to be aware of. Number one is that Moab, uh, essentially it was founded or it started in a guy, with a guy named Moab. Now, Moab is his, uh, was both the son and the grandson of a guy named Lot. Yeah, we're not going to go into more details about that particular story. Uh, we want to try our best to keep this PG. Simply to say that the starting place for this group of people was in scandal, it was disturbing, and it was disgusting. It was something that was seen as an affront to God's commandments. And so this group of people, the Moabites, that essentially grew out of this, there was this kind of this assumption throughout this belief within the ancient world that the apple does not fall far from the tree. And so the Moabite people were reflective of that original starting place of the birth. And so there was this tension and rivalry between Moab and the people of Israel. As Israel is actually leaving or going to enter into Canaan, the promised land, the land that God gave Israel, there's a story about the king of Moab hiring a prophet to go and to curse the people of Israel. Essentially, this king, there's rumors of this, this powerful group of people, and they are powerful because there is a God who is working with them, walking with them, looking after them. And so he thinks, well, the only way we're going to defeat these guys is if we bring on someone to curse them and kind of get their God to turn against them. And so there's this prophet named Balaam, and there's this strange story about him riding on a donkey, and his donkey talks to him. Uh, and it's a, one of those stories that has, over the last number of decades, it has perplexed uh, per theologians, it has intrigued biblical scholars, and it has amused really, really immature people who read through the King James Version. That's a joke that like three people will get, but to those three people, it's really funny. Uh, anyways, uh, and so this, this is, there's this tension already. In fact, actually, you go and you read Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3. There, there's a command about how the Moabite people are supposed to be seen in relationship to Israel. It says, no Ammonites or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the 10th generation, for they did not come to meet you with bread and water. 
on their way when you came out of Egypt, and they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor and Aram, Neharaim, to pronounce a curse on you. So, so there's this idea that, no, no, wait, you do not interact with these people. They are not people who are welcome in God's temple. Now, to know a little bit more about the people of Moab, the land of Moab, they did not worship God, Yahweh, the, the God of Israel. They worshiped lots of different gods, but one of the most dominant gods was a god known as Shamash. In fact, actually, the people of Moab were often referred to as simply the people of Shamash. Now, Shamash was a sun god. He was a savage warrior god with incredible lust for blood. And he was also somehow known as the fish god. Now, I'm not sure, like sun, war, sushi. I don't know how all these things fit together. I don't know their relationship. But, but this was a god who was incredibly violent, who, who reveled and enjoyed his people, acting out violently. In fact, he's angry at his people when they are not acting out violently against their enemies. And this was a God that demanded human sacrifice at various different times. And so for us, we live in a multicultural society where, where there's lots of people who believe lots of different things and there's just this general like, oh, it's you believe what you wanna believe and you believe what you wanna believe. But, but in this ancient culture, we have to realize that the beliefs are powerful and they are taking people in very different and distinct directions about what a good life looks like, which is still in many ways true today. Uh, Numbers 25, verses 1 to 3, uh, it tells this story about the people of Israel. It says this, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and the Lord's anger burned against them. I simply say all this to say that when we think about the fact that Ruth was from Moab, that Ruth was a Moabite test, she is, has this scandalous history, this history of tension and adversity with the people of Israel, a history of idolatry and worshiping false gods. And so when we get to verse 22 in Ruth, this is, this, this is a profound thing to read. So Naomi returned and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. This is about more than travel. This is about more than location. This is about a change or a transformation of the heart and of allegiance. Second Chronicles chapter seven, verse 14, it says this. This is the Lord speaking to Israel. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, shuv, from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. The writers of Ruth, the writer of Ruth is wanting to draw our attention that this is not just simply about a change in location. This is about a total transformation of the way that Ruth sees herself, she sees the world, and ultimately about the way that she sees God. Another translation of the word shuv is simply repent. 
It is to return away from our sin. It is to return to the life that God created us for. In Mark chapter one, verse 15, Jesus begins his ministry. He's out there proclaiming the kingdom of God. And this is his message. He begins by saying this. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. In all likelihood, this word would have translated literally as shuv or teshuvah. It meant to turn away from your sin, return to that place that God called you to be, the people that you, God created you to be, the people of light in this world who reflect his image to the world. Jesus' message to us is to turn away from the destructive false lies that we believe about God and we believe about ourselves and we believe about the way that we live and invites us instead to believe in him, to entrust ourselves to him. Now, often when we think about belief, we think about simply, oh, I just need to believe that Jesus exists or that Jesus is, is divine, that Jesus truly is God in human flesh who died and rose again. And while those things are true and important, to simply say we believe is to miss out on the depth and meaning of what that word really means and what it means to repent, which is so much more than just simply feeling bad about the bad things that we used to do, but instead is a turning over of our entire lives and stepping into the new thing that God has for us. I love the way that Ruth demonstrates for us what it means to trust, to believe the good news. Look at Ruth's statements in it that she says to Naomi, chapter one, verses 16 and 17. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. And again, your people will be my people. Let's just highlight that for a second. Now, in the ancient world, go to the next slide. In the ancient world, if you, if you were to talk about what who you are, now we live in an individualistic society, and so who are you? Well, it's kind of whoever you choose to be, however you want to define yourself, and and whatever you think is important about you that you want to share with others and you want others to see in you. But in the ancient world, your identity and your community, your family, the people that you are a part of, your religion, all of it is all tangled up and you don't choose that for yourself. Instead, that is something that is given to you and assumed of you. And so when Ruth proclaims to Naomi that your people will be my people, this is a radical statement. I mean, this is something that's almost unheard of in the Old Testament. It rarely ever happens. This is about more than, than Ruth just saying, hey, these are my kind of people. But this is about her saying, you know, I am leaving behind that way of life. In fact, it's, I am dying to that old identity, to that old family, that old community, that old way of looking at the world. And I am instead giving myself over to a new identity, one that is entirely defined and shaped by the God of Israel. And look at what she says after that, and your God, my God. 
She's saying, I'm refusing to live with the old categories, the way that I used to see things. I'm surrendering my life in allegiance to your God. And then actually just down here, she says, may, you, may the Lord deal with me. And that the particular word that's used there, if you're reading it in the, I believe in the NIV, that's probably all uppercase. It's Lord, which means Yahweh. This is the personal name for the covenant God revealed to Moses. And so this is, this is not just simply some generic, like, I'll believe whatever you believe. This is, this is Ruth saying, no, I'm surrendering myself. I'm turning away from that old life and I'm entering into the new life. This is a statement about identity as much as it is about community. Uh, a couple days ago, I took part in a writer's workshop. It was through Zoom, and uh, there's an author that I, I admire and I've learned a lot from, and so I thought, oh, I just want to kind of learn some of their techniques because I would love to write. Uh, I just have different ideas floating around in my head, and I was wondering if there's tips or tricks to kind of help me get those things out on paper. And uh, this writer was walking through his biography and, and just, or uh, uh, his bibliography, all the different books that he's written, and he talked about his first experience writing, and he said the biggest challenge for him with his first book was wrestling with the question, who am I? I mean, who am I to write a book? I mean, I've never written a book before. I don't really have anything all that profound to say. Uh, who am I to write a book? And he just went on to say, he said, if you write, then you're a writer. If you write, then you are a writer. That's in you, that's what you do. Stop worrying about all these questions and simply enter into that new state, that new place of realizing this is who you are. I think for many of us, we wrestle with the question. We wrestle with that internally within our hearts, just going, God, what? Really? Like, am I really in this? I look at my life compared to other people, and I, and I go, oh, am I, does, is Jesus, is that making a difference in my life? And the first question we need to ask, have you left that old life behind? Are you just continuing on with the same habits, addictions, rituals, values, from the old life, or, or, or like Ruth, have you said, no, no, I'm leaving that all behind and your people are going to be my people and, and your God is going to be my God. Has there been a total shift in allegiance? And for many of us who, who have committed our lives to following Jesus, but we've brought in all sorts of baggage and contraband back with us from Moab. And God is saying, hey, leave that stuff behind. Don't bring that with you because it's gonna hold you back from experiencing the life that I've actually created you for. But the good news is this, is that even in our successes and our failures, the invitation to be a part of God's family, to be God's, a part of God's people, and to even be able to come to God and call God, God, and worship him and entrust our lives to him is less about us and everything about Jesus. It's about what Jesus has done, about his, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the spirit that he has given to each and every one of us 
to change us and to shape us and to make us more like him. And so maybe one of the things you just simply need to do is this is, about, this is an issue about categories. This is an issue about how you see yourself and maybe the thing that you need to be doing is going, wait a minute, I'm a child of God. And that has nothing to do with my accomplishments, but everything to do with the accomplishments of Jesus. And if there's baggage, if there's stuff that you need to get rid of, deal with that. Bring it out into the light. Confess it to God. Confess it to other Christians and deal with it. But, but realize that your status has less to do with you and everything to do with what Jesus has done. Acts 11, verse 18, it says this. This is the, the good news that, that, that the apostles are sharing. And they are surprised because originally this message of repent was one simply to the Jewish people. It was like, hey, you were created to be the light of the world, to show the people who God is. So, so repent, turn away from that or return to being who God created you to be. But then in Acts, they start seeing that the Holy Spirit is coming upon these Gentiles, people who are not raised in good religious homes. And God is working and doing profound things to them. And so it says this, when they, the apostles and the other followers of Jesus heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. For so many of us, the idea of repentance, it's about harking on guilt and making people feel terrible for things. And while there's things that we genuinely should feel terrible for, uh, the very, the, 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 this exciting, the, the powerful thing about repentance is that it leads to life. Repentance, the call to repentance is not a punishment, it's a gift of grace to, to leave that old way of living behind and to enter into the new life that God originally created each and every one of us for. And so my hope and my prayer is we reflect on this story from this old the Old Testament, the story of Ruth, that we would discover that the invitation, that the calling to repent, to turn away from the old life is not a burden or a punishment, but is an incredible gift. And that as we leave that stuff behind, as we no longer see ourselves as the people of Shamash, but rather the people of God, we discover a new life that we could never achieve on our own. I want to conclude our, our time with this, this psalm, uh, but it's a prayer as well. Psalm 51, this is a psalm of repentance Here's what it says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop 
and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue who will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Know that each one of us have been invited from being a people of Shamash to the people of God. Would you return to the life that God created you for. It might be a life you have never even knew was there. And would you discover the life of walking with God and with his people? Thank you so much for joining us this week. We hope that you have an incredible week. We are back next week. Uh, excited to be with you then. Take care. Bye-bye.